Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at sumatisparks.com. And tonight I'm really excited to have as my guest, Kevin Patterson. Kevin is an active member of the Philadelphia polyamory community and a curator of Poly Role Models, an interview series for people describing their experiences with polyamory. The blog's work spun into a nationwide speaking engagement about how race and polyamory intersect, and this has led to the writing of the book, Love's Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hey, Sumati. Thank you so much for having me. So good to have you here. So, yeah, I definitely want to get into more about your book um, and definitely talking about uh, the intersection of race and polyamory, um, but let's start with your personal story. Um, can you talk, tell us a little bit about how you, or when you realized you were polyamorous, and a little bit of your journey, and what your relationship structure looks like today? Um, well, it started really roundabout, uh, it started really unexpectedly, where uh, my wife, then girlfriend at the time, um, this is maybe almost 16 years ago, we sort of stumbled into into our non-monogamy. We, we fell into an unexpected threesome. And once we were sort of off the path, like off the, off the monogamy path, we just sort of stayed there. We, we had mm-hmm. built in a lot of, we'd built in a lot of off ramps, uh, as far as when we, you know, I guess get serious or, you know, join mainstream society in, in monogamy, but we never took any of those on, uh, off ramps. They just stopped making sense as we approached them. Um, at some point, we found our local community. We started uh, reading books. We started learning from people. And it, at that point, uh, I'd say that's when we sort of identified as polyamorous, even though we had been like well outside of monogamy for over a decade at that point. But once we realize, like, this is something that we're doing, this is a, this is something we're not going back from, there are no more off-ramps. That's when we sort of, I guess, identified, came out, started being honest about our, part, uh, our other partners as opposed to, like, you know, referring to them as friends, you know, called them by the labels that we had chosen for ourselves and that sort of thing. Cool. And then what what is your um what does polyamory look like in your life today? Um right now, um my polyamory looks like a wild maelstrom of 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 partners. Um I've got <laughs> uh I've got partners that I see locally. I've got partners that I I might only see if I'm at conferences at different parts of the country. Um I'm actually getting ready to hop on a plane this weekend to go to the wedding of a partner that I've actually never met in in real life. Uh, she's someone that I've been talking to for years. I've you know that I've loved for years. I helped introduce her to someone else who was local to her a couple of years past, and they're getting ready to get married. I'm about to hop on a plane to give away a bride that as as of today I've actually never met. So my polyamory, it's. It's like when you see the conspiracy theorist in a movie and he's got a bunch of uh, pictures thumbtacked to a wall with uh, thread <laughs> tying the thumbtacks together. That's basically what my polyamory looks like. A wild maelstrom. I love that. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard that in concert with polyamory. <laughs> That's great. 
Um, so you have a partner that you've never met, but you consider them a partner. So tell us more about that, because a lot of people would feel like if you're not having sex with someone or you're not, you know, at least touching them, how can they be a partner? So, so tell me more about why you consider them a partner and what that relationship looks like. I mean, the, the, thing with, the thing with all of my partnerships, the things with all of my interactions is that, like, the labels aren't really that important because, like, there's um, – some of the labels that I have are, d- differ from some of the labels that my partners have. What's really important is sort of the connection that we have and that we both agree that the connection is something that's beneficial and fulfilling and something that we wish to continue. I call everyone mm-hmm. partner just to sort of keep it – keep things straight in my head. I'm not even sure if that's mm. how she refers to me, and I don't think mm. she'd be all that hung up over a label either. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, we've, we've known each other. We've had each other's back. We've supported each other. Um, she's rich. She reads my work. I read her work. Um, we offer each other advice. We do all the things that a couple can do just with the logistical problem of long distance. So there's only, mm. you know, that's... If you ask somebody what's important out of a partnership, they would list all the things that we currently have. It's just they'd probably mm. be doing it in the same room. And mm. polyamory being what it is, I'm not going to let that be the thing that stops me from having a meaningful connection. Yeah, and that's one of the wonderful things about alternative relationships is um, you can have all these different kinds of relationships um, where maybe there's just this one thing that you have in common and you just relish in that and you don't have an expectation that you have everything in common. Um, so that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And you also talked about um, when you came out um, to your community. And let's talk about that for a minute, uh, the whole coming out process, because a lot of the clients I work with are new to open relationship and they're struggling with, um, trying to, you know, keep it from their families and their communities. And if they, if they have school-aged children, you know, if their children know, then it gets spread around the school and they can be thought of as bad parents. And there's just all this drama around people that are new. So can you talk about your coming out process and some of the hurdles that you had to overcome? Well, um, let me start by saying that there's actually a really good resource for that. Um, there's a, a book about coming out about your non-monogamous relationships. The book is titled, It's Called Polyamory, Coming Out About Your Non-Monogamous Relationships. It's uh, Tamara Pincus and Rebecca Hiles. And, like, my story is actually in that book, but, like, just sort of go into detail for, for your listeners. Um, there was a point where... I I met somebody, I thought it was going to be like a weekend worth of hookups, and within a month they were like stepmomming to my kids, they were like a very meaningful and very powerful connection, they were a, a big part of our lives, and at that point I could not in good conscience refer to her to anybody as anything other than who she was in my life. Um, I was, we were, my wife and I, we were already going to like uh, local meetups. We had already read all the books, Ethical Slut, more than, um, I don't know if we had read more than two at that point. I don't even know if more than two was out at that point, but like Ethical Slut mm-hmm. and Opening Up and all these other books. And there was no point 
in us being quiet about who we were and what we were doing. Um, as far as, like, my wife, she went and told her mom and said, hey, like, this is what our relationship looks like. You've known Kevin for over a decade. This is what's happening. And her take was basically, all right, well, as long as you can do the same thing he's doing and as long as you're not screwing up my grandbabies, we're all good. Um <laughs> I wish I had gotten that same reaction from my own folks. Um, I get the impression that my dad doesn't really care one way or the other, but my dad isn't the my dad isn't the face of his marriage. My dad isn't the voice of his marriage. That's my mom, and my mom mm-hmm. is very anti. She is uh, far more conservative about this thing than I than I would have given her credit for. Um, she doesn't understand. She doesn't want to understand. She will not accept any. Uh, she will not accept like really any talk about it, which is weird because like I'm, I've written a book. I'm traveling the country. I'm going to conferences. I'm speaking in places, and these are things that my mom does in her own industry, in her own field. So it's something she values, but she doesn't value it out of her son because it's about polyamory. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm I'm aggressively out. I. You know, my face has been on my face has been on my local newspaper. I'm I'm out, and I don't really care who knows at this point. Um, as far as say my kids, my kids my kids know everything to like an age appropriate degree. Like if I end up at a swing party, my kids aren't going to know anything about that. But like if I've got a girlfriend over and like you know she's sitting on the couch with her feet in my lap. My my kids are going to pick up really quickly that this is somebody who I am more familiar with than on a friendly basis. My kids don't care. My kids don't really mm-hmm. – it doesn't matter to them. All they know is that there are adults in the house, adults that care about them, adults that will speak to them um, in respectful tones, and – you know, adults who will get them snacks and show up and show up to tea parties that they that they put on. So as long as mm-hmm. as long as they're as long as their kid needs are handled, they don't really care what's going on in in the adults' lives. Really, just they just mm-hmm. want to know that they're well taken care of and respected. Right. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit more about parenting um, in a little while, um, but sticking with your story, um, can you talk a little bit about? The issue of what used to be called secondary relationships, I don't really like that term um, because I'm into non-hierarchical relationships these days, Um, but you have a nesting partner, you have someone you're married to, someone you have a family with, and then you have other partners. So how do you go about making those other people feel like they are of equal value and importance in your life? as opposed to some couples have what we call the veto, where they just can nix somebody on a moment's notice. Um, and so I wonder if you could just share a little bit about how you honor it and acknowledge all the other people in your life. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I What I try to do most importantly is just let my partners know, like, our, our relationship is ours. Um, there's my you know my my wife I live with her we have kids and a house and like insurance and things so like obviously there's going to be a level of investment and involvement there that that ties us together very deeply but at no point can my wife tell me anything at all about my relationships at no point can I tell her anything about her relationships and I think that's really important I mean there's there's definitely like a higher 
hierarchy in terms of investment and involvement because I can't just pick up and leave to go move with somebody, you know, move in with somebody else just because of the mm-hmm. way my life is structured and entwined with my wife, with my wife's life. Mm-hmm. But you know, but that's a matter of that's a matter of circumstance. If say a partner decides they want to try to move in with me, that's a conversation we're going to have to, that's a conversation we can have. And my wife can't tell me anything about that relationship. She can tell me about the logistics of this house and we can sort that out. But at no point is anyone going to veto anybody. We couldn't if we, if we tried You know, I had a partner once who was worried that, um, one day, um, one day my wife might say, well, let's go back to monogamy. And, I had to assure my partner, like, if my wife wants to go back to monogamy, that's her call. <laughs> I'm not going mm-hmm. back. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I got a, I've got, I've got a, t- I've got an infinity heart tattoo. I'm, I'm never going back. <laughs> and so, what if? I'm sure you've had a situation where either you or your wife has a partner that the other doesn't really like or has trouble connecting with. Um, just sort of doesn't feel that comfortable with what do you do in those situations i mean that's 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 been a thing before um i know there's uh there there, there used to be a fellow in my wife's life where i felt like i did not like how they related um and i understood that a lot of that was my problem I did express this to my wife, but not in the manner of you should do this with this relationship. It was, hey, you are someone I care about. Here is a concern I have. And then I backed out. I backed off because it's her. she's an adult. She's got an autonomy. It's her, it's her place to decide what she wanted to do. It's my place also as an adult with autonomy to decide how much I wanted to have that person in my life. So if they were together – that's fine. That's what them doing what they need to do. But if I decided to back out of a room when they, you know, or like not go to engagements with them together, that's my, you know, that's my decision. And the, mm-hmm. the same with, um, you know, like we've, we've got a big enough house that uh, there are times where my wife didn't want to be in a room with a partner, a, a partner and I, you know, it was just, she didn't hate the partner. She didn't, you know, distrust them. Just their personalities clash. And so when that partner was with me, my wife was somewhere else. She'd be in a different room. She'd mm-hmm. be doing something else. She'd go, she'd go hang out with the kids. She'd go hang out with one of her own partners somewhere else. And and that was okay. If there was a concern, she would bring it to me, but she, but not with the expectation that I would uh, adjust my behavior around her, you know, around her fear or her insecurity or her concern, just as a matter of letting me know how she feels about something or letting me know why she's not like showing up when this partner is in the, you know, is in proximity. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Now that's, that's a real advanced level of polyamory. So it, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't that way when you first started, um, when you first started opening your marriage oh. or before you were married, um, what did you do when one of you had a reaction or some kind of trigger um, and you want to you want to give each other space to have these other relationships, but but also someone's hurting. So, how did where did you find that dance between, um, you know, knowing that it's your stuff, but also needing reassurance or whatever from your other partner? Did you take communication classes? Did you crash and burn a few times and have to practice a lot? Like, how did you get to where you are now? 
Oh yeah, I mean everybody crashes. Everyone crashes and burns uh, a, a few times, and unfortunately, when, at the way polyamory plays out, when you make a mistake, when you hurt, you know, when you when you make a mistake, when you crash and burn, you are inevitably breaking somebody's heart, and that's it's it's a downfall of it all. Uh, when, we, when we got started, we had like a set of rules, and like I don't even really remember them, but like. Um, we definitely said, like, we actually said the words that we were going to prioritize each other in all things. We definitely mm-hmm. leaned very heavily into what's called uh, couples privilege. If I was about mm-hmm. to go out with somebody and my wife felt some sort of way about it, that means I wasn't going out with that person. I would just stay mm-hmm. home with my wife. And I'd feel salty about it because I wanted to go out, and she'd feel salty about it because she knew I wanted to go out, but that's what we did. And at some point, um, at some point when my wife was having sort of a break from dating in general, I met somebody who ended up sort of being my game changer where um, she had several partners. She introduced me to some of the terms that I use a lot today and just her relationships were what they were without anybody else leaning on them. Like she had a nesting partner who couldn't tell her about her relationships, and I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's what I want my polyamory mm-hmm. to look like. She had a housewarming party where, like, three of her partners, myself included, all showed up to this housewarming party, and then, like, I showed up to the, I showed up with my wife. And so now I'm there with two partners. She's there with three partners. Her nesting partner has, like, two or three partners. And I'm like, this is what I want my next party to look like. And I sort of crafted a lot of our, my polyamory around that, and it sort of – made sense to my wife as well and like a lot of times um the rules that we had and i'm gonna sort of air out my wife a little bit here so i hope she doesn't listen to this a lot of times (laughs) they were based on like a fear or insecurity she would have and she'd say hey Mm -hmm. we shouldn't do x y and z and then like gradually i'd watch her break that rule and then like it wouldn't be a problem for me because like i only agreed to that rule because it was something she wanted and Mm -hmm. Gradually, I'd see her break that rule, and then, like, I'd be like, okay, well, if this is off the table, I'm going to break this rule now. And then I'd break it, and she'd be like, hey, you broke the rule. And I'd say, you've been breaking it for months. (laughs) And then we'd argue and realize how silly it was for us to have had the rule in the first place. And then that rule would be gone, and then we'd have some other rule, and then that would be gone in the same way. Like, we actually did, like, that played out, what I just described, it played out like four or five different times with four or five different silly rules, and each time we just realized it was dumb that we even had this in place. So now we don't have mm-hmm. many rules in place. Excellent. Yeah, sometimes we fight over the breaking of the rule as a smokescreen to avoid addressing the feelings underneath and finding out what we actually want to ask the other partner for. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in a lot of cases, the rule itself is that way. Like, the rule itself is sometimes just like a cage for insecurity so that you can avoid it Mm -hmm. instead of confronting it. Like, instead of me Mm -hmm. saying, hey, this makes me feel something and I'm going to take ownership of those feelings, it's this makes me feel something so you should behave differently so I don't have to feel that way anymore. And that's not always the best way to handle it. Well said. Thank you. That was perfect. (laughs) So I'm imagining that, I I don't know, I'm just taking a wild stab in the dark, that maybe this woman you met who invited you to that party was what inspired your poly role models idea. Is that true? It is not, actually. Um, Oh, okay. So tell me how you got started with poly role models and tell us more about what it is. 
Well, all right. Well, let me. Uh, well, poly role models. It's it's an interview series um, where I speak to I speak to polyamorous people. I ask them about their real experiences, and they tell me that they they tell me them. And like sometimes that's a matter of written answers. Sometimes it's a video interview, and it's really simply, you know, how long have you been polyamorous? What does your relationship structure look like? What do you do good? What do you do poorly? Um, what, how do you rebound from the things you do poorly, which I feel is very important? How do you manage uh, risk-aware sex? And hmm, what's the biggest mistakes you've ever made? And like, what self identities are important to you? And how do your how do those self identities re, uh, impact your polyamory? Now, mm-hmm. um, I started the blog because I had screwed up. I was dating somebody who had uh, I had two relatively new relationships, and one of those partners decided they were going to come to my home and spend a week with me and my family. Another partner of mine had already sort of established living with us, like every other weekend where she had Fridays off, so she'd come up a Thursday night from uh, where she lived. She'd come over for Thursday night, and she'd stay there till like Sunday afternoon. And these two relationships intersected over the course of that weekend. So now I've got these two partners in the house with my wife, and I'm paying all of my attention to them and almost none of it to my wife. My wife can be distant at the best of times, but it's sort of my job to know when she's trying to be distant from everything and when she's trying to be distant from me. And I just sort of pretended that one was the other so that I wouldn't have to pay attention to her um, Mm -hmm. when I was so wrapped up with these two other partners. And by Mm -hmm. the end of the weekend, it turned into a fight. It turned into a mm. like this knockdown, drag-out fight. All of our fears, all of our insecurities came up, not just about this situation, but about, like, our relationships in general. And there were points where we could have disbanded and joined other families, but somehow we ended up riding the ship. And we're recounting this story to our local polyamory group, and... um the organizer said something to the effect of, wow, you guys have been doing this for 12 years and you're still finding ways to screw up and, and rebound. <laughs> you're, like, you're like poly role models. And then like the mm. whole car ride home from that meetup, I was like, wow, that was a good idea, poly role models. I wonder what that could be a thing that I do and I can make it like right. people, of, you know, I can make it like humans of New York and I can, you know, and the, part, of, part of the mission there wasn't just to show um, really good respectability politics, happy, friendly polyamory. I wanted to show people screwing up. I wanted people to, I wanted people to talk about not just their worst moments, but how they rebound from those from those moments. Not just the things that they're good at, but the things that they're bad at. And how do they how do they work on those things that they struggle with? Um, it's less a one on one for people who are. It's less of a one on one for people who've never heard of polyamory. It's it's a 201 for people who are already in polyamory, who are already interested in polyamory, who are well entrenched. Because we hear so often, whenever something screws up in a polyamorous relationship, people blame the polyamory. And it's really mm-hmm. easy to believe that, you know? Like monogamous folks screw up their relationships all the time, and very rarely do they say, boy, maybe it's just monogamy that's the problem. And sometimes it is, <laughs> right. sometimes it isn't. But like if if you know if my if my wife dumps me because you know because I can't close the cabinets properly and yeah I have a problem I I take glasses and bowls and stuff out and I don't always close the cabinet but if my wife divorces me for that somebody's gonna blame it on polyamory 
you know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to show people, like, yes, you can be polyamorous and mis- and make mistakes. You can be polyamorous and problematic. You can, you know, you can... You can break somebody's heart or you can have your heart broken and still be polyamorous. Like, you can make those mistakes and rebound from them. So I talk a lot about that. There's actually um, a feature of the blog called Cautionary Poly, Teachable Moments in Non-Monogamous Relationships. And it's just people recounting without identifying characteristics, not trying to air out anybody's privacy, but it's people recounting some of their horror stories and then what they learn from those horror stories because that's the most important part. Mhm. Um what are a couple can you give us a couple examples of um the horror stories and then what they learned from it? Um one of my one of my uh, one of my favorites is actually the very first one and um where a young woman a young woman was dating a couple. Um and according to her she's actually got a lot of these couple dating stories, couple dating horror stories, but she was dating a couple and um but this couple wasn't really keyed in on the sort of couple privilege of the situation, but as the as the dating progressed, these rules would start popping up. These rules that this woman, the writer, didn't have a hand in creating. Um these rules that this established couple had put in place to sort of limit how much autonomy and how much respect and how much time and access this writer could have to the relationship she had with either one of these partners. Um, so it's it comes to a head at one point where the the three of them are the three of them are about to have sort of a Netflix and chill night. Um, the wife comes home from work and when she gets home from work um, she goes and opens a pizza box. They you know the husband and the writer had had uh, ordered a pizza, and when she opens up the pizza, she closes it, slams it, and throws it and says, you know, this is our pizza, pepperoni and black olives. Like, how dare you order our special pie with the three of us together? And she she loses it because, like, she had some sort of propriety, you know, you know she had some sort of ownership over the kind of pizza, that there was a special pizza mm-hmm. for her and her husband. And, like, how dare you order their special pizza for the three of them together as a triad and at which point the writer like she leaves in a in a storm of thrown kitchen appliances she grabs her bag and rolls on out of there and mm-hmm. like what she learned is that um what she learned is at least in that story as far as i remember is that she learned to um be more mindful of couples that she chooses to date and ask them mm-hmm. and make sure that they are well aware of couple privilege and that there's that there's an inherent power imbalance to being a couple trying to date the stereotypical hot bi babe. And if you know if right. she decides to date a couple in the future, if if they can't answer those questions, if they can't uh, if they can't embrace that topic and have like real conversations about sort of the autonomy of the situation. Then she's got to get out of there. And and realistically, I hear a lot of st- very similar stories from women who date couples and find out that like there were a bunch of rules in place that they didn't have a hand in writing. That they're that they're basically a, a sex toy with little autonomy to spice up somebody's disappointing marriage. And just knowing <laughs> that and going into the situation, uh, watching for that, it ends up saving a lot of people a lot of heartbreak. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very good. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Kevin Patterson, who is from Philadelphia, and he is the curator of Poly Role Models. And we're going to talk about the book that he's written in a few minutes here. Um, but for now, we're talking about something called Couples Privilege. And for those who haven't, for our listeners who haven't heard that term before, some of our listeners might be in a long-term relationship or marriage considering opening their marriage. And I think people who are new to polyamory might automatically think, oh, well, I'm just going to make sure that my wife or my husband is my priority, just like you and your wife did when you started. So what would you say to people that are new to polyamory about what couples privilege is and what is your philosophy around that? Um, of course, when people are new, um, you know, all of our insecurities come to the fore. But ideally, what would be the best way for a couple to open their marriage without, um, you know, relying on that couple's privilege model? Um, it's it's not always easy because, like, uh, when you're when you're breaking a paradigm that's as strong and firmly held and societally based as uh, uh, as monogamy, it's scary, and people try to enter this scary place from the most comfortable most comfortable way possible, and it's not an easy thing where. People try to protect what they have in their in their their established relationship, and in doing so, they limit the amount of relationship that can exist outside of that. And you know, just being mindful of that, like just sort of the um, the idea of um, of these unicorn hunter triads. The whole basis of that is about protecting yourself from. It'll protect, you know, it's, it's sort of approaching it from a place of fear where so many of these uh, relationships start like, well, it allows her to um, ex- explore her bisexuality while not having to give up the thing that she that she wants. And it allows him to be able to be with two women at the same time without having to fear that somebody's going to show, you know, somebody else with a dick is going to show up and steal her away from me, you know? Mm-hmm. It's very based in 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 homophobia and like not treating uh, uh women's relationships with other women as real. It's very based mm-hmm. in um transphobia in that um, if if this if this bi woman decides she wants to date a trans woman, a lot of times that guy will have a problem with that, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, or right, it's exactly. a, or if or if if she decides to have a, a date with a trans man, he might be like, oh well, that's okay because you know this lack of dick is is fine, but then it's not respecting his uh, it's not respecting this trans man trans man's identity as as a man. There's a lot going into it, and people feel like they they can just sort of approach it from this place of fear while legislating what to do with other people's relationships. And you know, you're you're kind of expecting someone to fall in love when you're going after this hot bi babe, that stereotype. You're kind of expecting someone to fall in love with two people, two unique individuals simultaneously and equally. And and, and equally, right. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's not how relationships work. Um and 
there are so many there are so many women who I've met who said, Well, I went into this thing, I was trying to date a couple and I fell in love with the guy but I wasn't really that into I wasn't really that into his wife and then they kicked me out of the relationship, they kicked me out of their out of their lives because they thought I was trying to steal him away when really I just mm-hmm. naturally fell in love with one and not the other. Right. You know. And there's there's a right. lot of that that happens. What I would say to somebody who's trying to find find their relationship is do the research. We live in a time where there's so much research about there's you know like there's you know resources like my blog, there's resources like more than two. There's a ton of books and articles and local meetups and online forums. You can do the kind of research and learn about a lot of the common pitfalls from a safe place before you go in and break somebody's heart doing the same thing that a thousand other people have already done. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you jumped ahead of me. You answered the question I was going to ask, which is, um, and maybe you have some other thoughts about it, so I'll ask it anyway. Um, what are uh, the things that you would recommend to people who want to open their relationship? They're aware that the insecurities and jealousies that come up are their own story. Um, they're aware that it's their own triggers from their childhood or their society programming or what have you. Um, But those insecurities are still getting in the way and they're feeling a lot of pain, but they really want to move through it. What would you recommend to people like that? I mean, um, embrace that. Uh, if, If you know that it's your shit to own, embrace it. Walk into it. Like, I lean into it myself. I've been at this for 16 years, and sometimes I even end up feeling some sort of way about, like, my partners and their other partners. And I walk right into that. Like, I don't pretend that it doesn't exist. I don't try to control my partner's behavior. The thing I say all the time is, this isn't about me. My partners aren't trying to hurt. You know, if I feel hurt, it's not because my partners are trying to hurt me. It's because they're just doing their own thing and I'm missing out on something. I've got a fear. I've got an insecurity. I've got a jealousy. I've got some pain. What is causing this? What can I do to stop this? This isn't their problem. It's mine. And just sort of leaning into it in that way is really important and really helpful, like not just to you but to your partners as well because sometimes they can help you sort it out, not by taking your responsibility as their own but as, you know, as a loving partner trying to help you through, um, you know, a hard time, they can lean into that with you just as long as it's still yours and not theirs. Yeah, as long as you're not blaming them or making them wrong for something they did, then they can hold the space for you and reflect back and help you figure out what's going on in yourself. Exactly that, yes. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, Another thing that you talked about was uh, we had a discussion about this in my poly community, um, and we called it symbols. So you were talking about the pizza. So for for that wife, the pizza was a symbol um, of their love. And so we, we talked about this once in, in our community about the different kinds of symbols that people have, like that's our restaurant and you can't take anyone else there, or that's, that's our pet name that you call me and you can't call anyone else that. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, I think it's okay if couples agree and if they know ahead of time that, you know, whatever the pizza flavor was that that's our pizza if, if she knows if she has was able to tell him that ahead of time you know please don't order this pizza with anyone else 
he would probably say fine because he he's probably not that attached to what type of pizza he orders. <laughs> um, yeah. But when it comes to something bigger, um, like you can't do that one sex position with that person, then I think that gets into legislating the relationship. Like the I like that phrase you use, legislating. Yeah, definitely. I know that's not something that uh, it's not something that I do. It's not something I subscribe to. And like everybody's polyamory is their own, and that's sort of the magic of polyamory. Everyone gets to sort of customize it, choose your own relationship adventure sort of thing. Um, I know that I don't do that only because the uniqueness of the relationships. I don't feel like I want to manufacture that. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's a meme, and it's from um, there's a meme that's from like Dexter. Um, there's a character. Uh, is it okay that I curse? Yes. <laughs> okay. There's a, there's like a character in Dexter. I didn't watch the show, but like apparently he says surprise, motherfucker. And there's a guy who sort of extended it and you know turned it into like surprise, motherfucker, surprise, motherfucker. You know, all rise and like he just sort of extended this meme. And like a, a partner of mine. We just sort of did that spontaneously once, where she said the first line, then I said the second, then she said the third, and like it wasn't expected, but that was a thing that we just sort of did, and that's unique mm-hmm. to us, you know. Mm-hmm. My, I've got other partners who have seen that meme, other partners who have watched that show, who are very familiar with it all, but like that was an experience, just sort of the spur of the moment reciting of this of this clever meme that me and her have that me and my other partners don't. And mm-hmm. that's not something we had to manufacture. We didn't have to, like, buy, like, unique jewelry or have specific uh, specific restaurants or specific, you know, like, partner-specific sex positions or anything like that. It's just her being her and me being me created this experience. And that's how I feel mm-hmm. about, like, I feel that way about all of my partners, where, like, I went to see that movie Get Out, like, four times last year. And every time I saw it, I saw it with somebody different. And we had such different conversations based on what we felt we saw in that movie, how it reflected uh, our personal lives, like our personal struggles, uh, things we've had to deal with, our backgrounds. And we had such different conversations doing all the same things. If I had said, well, Get Out is my movie with Partner A, then me and partner B don't have such a rich and wonderful conversation about it later. I I mm-hmm. can't manu- I don't feel comfortable like sort of manufacturing a special thing. All of these things are special things. Every interaction with every one of my partners is special just because of who they are and who I am and the way we interact. Mhm. I love it. Thank you. Okay, so let's move on to another topic. Um, I want to talk about your book. Um, I want to make sure we have plenty of time for that. So um, has your book come out already? Um, my book comes out on the 30th, uh, Friday the 30th. Um, but oh, okay. it's, it's out. It, I mean, it's it's not out, but it's out. Where about a month ago we started getting, uh, like, um, you know, friends and partners of mine who, who had pre-ordered the book started getting – you know, shipping confirmations. So the book has sort of broke street date by about a month, and I'm not at all mad about that. So it's not officially out, but it's out. And also nice. there was um, a books a book tour campaign. I'm going to be all over the country uh, signing uh, signing books and talking about race and polyamory. The people who backed that crowdfunding campaign, they got copies early. So, like, the book 
is currently in a lot of hands, and I am not at all upset about that. Great. Yeah, and I saw, just so we can mention it to many of our listeners, our local, um, it looks like you're going to be doing a book signing in San Francisco on May 2nd and in Oakland on May 3rd. Yes, absolutely, and that's uh, that's before hopping on a hopping on a bus up to Los Los Angeles, where I'm going to be uh, presenting at Catalyst Con. Excellent, good for you. Cool. Okay, so the book is called "Love's Not Colorblind: Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities." So, can you talk about what led you to focus on race and the intersection of polyamory in your in your writings? Oh, it, it 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 all stems from uh, it all stems from my own personal experiences, really. Um, I, you know, as as has been said, I live in the Philadelphia area, and when I first sort of entered the uh, the community, I found that I was often like one of very few people of color, one of very few black people going to events. Like there'd be times where like there'd be like two or three or four people, and it'd be like me, my wife, you know, her partner, and like somebody else, and you know that's it's something that sort of wears on you after a while and it was something that i talked mm-hmm. about because i've got like one move i've got like one go-to move that i use for everything and that's talking about it getting loud pointing mm-hmm. things out you know and like being the elephant in the room that's like my go-to move all of the time mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um i started talking about my experiences being one of very few people of color and Eventually, uh, it was suggested that I start presenting at workshops and um, um, like just sort of writing about it, not just talking about it with my friends, but writing about it and discussing it with strangers, discussing it in like conference and classroom settings. And I started doing that, and eventually it was suggested that I turn this into a book so I could sort of extend the conversation that I had been having for the last couple of years in a way that, like, you know, I can't be everywhere, but a book can, you know. Like, I've already sent copies of my book to places I've never visited and possibly won't ever visit. And so if that's the case, well, yeah, the book ended up being the right move. But just talking about barriers for entry that people of color face in some of these communities, talking about why it even matters, talking about – sort of what causes some of these imbalances it's been it's been a really it's been a really awesome topic it's been a really introspective conversation um a lot of it comes from just sort of dealing with personal pain like just dealing with racism dealing with white supremacy on a daily basis it's something that weighs on you all of the time and being able to mm-hmm. go out in front of people and say like hey this is what i'm going through and this is how it affects my polyamory and to see other people of color sort of nodding their head in agreement cuz they deal with it too that's that's mm. been amazing and validating it's been it's, it's been such a wild ride such a surreal thing I'll bet that's very powerful and healing to be able to speak, completely speak your truth about it. So um, you said a couple things I want to dig farther into. One is, why does it matter? Can you talk about why it matters? Um, Yeah, yeah. Like, these... um these communities these communities can be really awesome, but nobody no community wants to be the one that's known as um as unwelcoming to say people of color or unwelcoming mm-hmm. to trans people or unwelcoming to people of disabilities. No group wants to be that group, so it matters that you actually do what's necessary that you sort of acknowledge the privilege that a group has and 
work to counteract that. Like something like another another reason why I don't do like the whole personalized experiences thing where I don't like sort of manufacture uniqueness out of my relationships. Because a lot of times when you hear that conversation, like how do you set partner A apart from partner B, a lot of times those conversations go into a really class biased place. You know, I hear people talking about, well, I go to restaurant. I go to this restaurant with one person. I go to restaurant, you know, to this other restaurant with someone else. Well, what if you can't afford either restaurant? You know, mm-hmm. or what if restaurant? What if restaurant A is fast food and restaurant B is like Ruth Chris Steakhouse? Is there mm-hmm. like an inherent class bias now going on in your relationships? Like, is that something that's happening? You know, I've heard mm-hmm. people talking about like they make like sort of partner specific trips. You know, I. Right now, in this moment, I can't make partner-specific trips to their homes, you know? Like, a lot of my partners have to come visit me. So there's a class, there's a class thing that happens, and polyamory often gets um, a, repu- a, rep- uh, a reputation as being unfriendly to, uh, to unpre- unfriendly to poor folks by way of just sort of, like, you know, class bias. And that's something that we need to to, to look at as well. That's something that, that, that fits into why it matters. Because do you want to have a representation as being like a playground for rich white folks? Or do you want to be a relationship structure that's open and accessible to all? Um, mm-hmm. Not just Not just that, but also... We get better ideas. We get more. We get richer and more diverse ideas when we have a richer and more diverse set of people involved in any community. Really, you know, there mm-hmm. are places. There, there. You know, every once in a while, somebody will say, "Well, I want to go to this happy hour, but I can't make it because it's on a side of town where people of color don't show up. It's on a side of town mm-hmm. where it's a little bit more expensive to get there. It's a little bit more expensive to stay there, and I'd have to get." babysitting which is expensive as well so i can't go to that thing well if you're keeping that person who can't make it to that thing if you're keeping that person in mind maybe they have a suggestion on their side of town something more accessible by way of mass transit something that's uh friendly to uh, that's family friendly and then all of a sudden now you don't just have one place to hold your event you've got two places to hold your event because you're keeping other people in mind you know, our, mm-hmm. our community gets stronger when we have a, a more diverse set of ideas and experiences and backgrounds involved. Great. And not to mention just more compassionate when we're mindful and we think about including everyone um, because they we need each other. Um, yeah. Somebody may need us to all chip in 10 bucks for their child care. What's 10 bucks to somebody with, who's gainfully employed, you know, so that we can have that person join us. So, so thank you for doing that work. I think it's super important for us to think about people that have less privilege and how can we um, make it more inclusive for everyone. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, sometimes these problems occur. Sometimes these uh, these exclusionary tactics occur just because people don't realize they're doing them or because people aren't being mindful of them. Just being able to have right. the conversation, being able to look at your group and say, wow, like, there aren't very many people of color here. There aren't many you know, people with disabilities here. I wonder why. Oh, wow, because we're in a place that's inaccessible to people with disabilities. Maybe we can do something about that. You know, but this, mm-hmm. just having these conversations is really important, and it can, it can bring such a vibrance to our communities and to our organizations when we do. Right. And when you talk about how these imbalances happen, 
Um, is, are you already answering that question by saying that we need to be more mindful about location and transportation and childcare and stuff like that? Or is there something more to, uh, is there something bigger around how the imbalances happen? I mean, a lot of it ends up being straight up white supremacy. Um, we live uh-huh. in a, we live in a country where I, we live in a country that that sort of pours into every aspect of our of our lives. Um, you know, I, I talk about I talk about cl- uh, class imbalances. Well, you've got um, you've got people of color who are traditionally historically oppressed by way of class, and if that's the case. That's going to pour into our polyamory. Who's going to show up to these events? Who's going to show up to these conferences? Who's going to be able to afford a couple of drinks at the next happy hour? People who are traditionally oppressed by way of class, that's going to affect them. Um, you know, white supremacy by way of representation, where if someone is getting othered or fetishized or to- tokenized at at an event, you know, that comes down to viewing human beings as stereotypes and that's something that plays out as a as a as a measure of white supremacy as well it's it's mm-hmm. something that like it's hard to talk about because when you talk about something like white supremacy people don't want to believe that they benefit from it and people don't want to believe that they um that they further it but that's a hard conversation that you have to have as you're trying to make your your community and your relationships and your your organizations and your meetups and your events a better more inclusive space you've got to look at that and you've got to you've got to add yourself to that equation sometimes you're on the negative side of it and that's a hard conversation to have but have it because it benefits everyone when you do mhm excellent thank you um what are some other uh, maybe you can give us a couple other interesting things that you learned while writing and researching your book um, well, a, a lot of it ends up just being sort of looking at representation as as, as a whole. Uh, something I something I do in the book, um, and it was it was completely genuine. It was completely spur of the moment when I was writing it. I decided to just do a Google search. I did a Google image search for polyamory, and I took a long look at the things that I would that I saw in those images, and it was almost universally white. Um, even when mm-hmm. we got to, like, even when I got to the first person of color in, in this search, and this was like dozens of images in before I found a person of color, it wasn't even a polyamorous person of color. It was like Steve Harvey interviewing somebody about polyamory, and the guy he was oh, yeah. interviewing. Yeah, and like, and the guy he was interviewing was shitty, and Steve Harvey is shitty, and like, this is, you know, we need better representation than that, but. Mm-hmm. So often when I talk to people, people of color, about polyamory, like when I talk to monogamous people, the first thing they say is, like, isn't that white people shit? And I get that so often that I named it one of my chapters. Like, it's something that um, Issa Rae says in her show Insecure. It's something that my friends have said to me, like, in, in conversation. It's it's a common thing. When you don't see yourself represented, it's easy to believe that this thing that's not representing you is just not for you. And just hearing how widespread that sort of thing is, knowing my own personal experiences, figuring, seeing how universal that is as an experience, that was eye-opening. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And so as you've traveled around the country speaking, um, what kinds of things have you noticed in different parts of the country? Has your message been well-received? Do you feel pushback in certain parts of the country or... How's that been um, for you? I, I've only really gotten um, like pushback when I was in Denver, 
And it was funny because I got, I got pushed back from a, from a, from an organizer who basically said, "Well, I don't know how to get people of color here," and you know everything that everything that I said, he was like, "Well, you know, there's just no way." I, I you know we've tried everything. It's like, well, you haven't tried everything because if you tried everything, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. And <laughs> you know, it, I was I was at a conference where I was one of two black men in attendance at that conference. And uh, me and this other black guy who I look nothing alike, we got confused for one another mm. over the course of the mm. whole weekend. Like it was something like mm. we're both tall and we're both tall black men. And that was about where the similarities ended. Mm. And so here I am at a conference where I keep getting confused for this other guy, where this other guy keeps getting confused for me when one of the local organizers was like, I have no idea how to get more people of color to this, you know, to to our uh, to our events, and I'm like, well, maybe you should change your leadership. And he wasn't he wasn't really happy about that. He wasn't really happy about <laughs> anything I presented. What he wanted me to say was, oh wow, you tried everything. I guess people of color. I guess it's you know it's everyone else's fault but yours that that your group looks like completely white. It's like, and when I did not give him that, he was he was sort of salty about it. Well, there's nothing I can do mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. And so what would you recommend to people that want to include um, more people of color in their polyamorous meetups or their tribes? Um, what kinds of things would you recommend they they try? Anything other than we've already talked about? I mean, it, there's, there's, a, there's a lot in the book, and I go, I go pretty in-depth in, 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 in like mm, sort of methods, great. not just for – not just for white folks and organizers, but also for people of color and sort of like how to how to sort of project your own messages. Um, I know like something that was ended up being really important in in my own local community was changing the leadership, um, mm-hmm. changing leadership and like having my face and my words out there. Um, it put me in spaces where people of color were, um, where I was uh, I was in. I was on the news. I was on the cover of my local newspaper talking about polyamory um, a few months ago, and I was able to go to my local Black and Poly group, or I was able to go to the Black and Poly Facebook group, and I posted, "If you are living in this area and you are looking for you know a polyamorous community, this is your signpost." And we added hundreds, like literally hundreds of people of color to our Facebook group over the course of a couple of months. Just because, like, you know, just because, like, I was, you know, I was using, I was using my platform. I was being a represent, a representative of my local community, and so there are a lot of people who said, well, maybe polyamory isn't for me, but there's that black guy doing it, and that's something that I've heard, mm-hmm. something that people have actually said to me, like, I wasn't sure if I could, I wasn't sure if I could, if I could explore this. I wasn't sure if there's anywhere for me in these communities. But then I saw you. I listened to your words. I jumped right on in, and I've been, you know, I've been hosting people of color exclusive events ever since. Before, like a couple of years ago, when I joined this community, a, a people of color exclusive event was unheard of, and now, like now, we can just host them. Now, now, mm-hmm. not just I, but like other people can just decide to host them, and there's a population enough to do so, and that's sort of an amazing aspect of it. That you know, people don't want to take their hands off the wheel and give up leadership of of the things that they built, but that's not a, it's not a bad thing to do so, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's one one of the many things I love about the Parkland students is they acknowledged their privilege right away and they instantly started including um, at the last uh, rally, the, the big rally in Washington, they had a, a powerful Hispanic young woman leader from L.A. come and speak and they had uh, black kids from Chicago come and speak about the gun violence there and I'm just so proud of them for the way they're role modeling to us to share their platform Everyone's paying attention to them because they're white and rich, and they're saying, "Okay, come on here, and and you know, we're going to share the stage with everyone." Um, oh yeah. what, what great role models they are for us, yeah. Yeah, and and you know, and there's it's a very important conversation to have about how many like kids from like Ferguson or Baltimore they got tear gassed for doing the same stuff mm-hmm. these Parkland kids are doing, and those Parkland exactly. kids are not shying away from that part of the conversation, and I'm really proud of them for doing so. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, we are already out of time. It just flew by, Kevin. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for the work you're doing. It's so important. Please keep it up. And um, before we run out of time, I want to give you a couple minutes to tell our listeners how they can reach you. And I believe you also have a, a, a gift or an offer for our listeners. So take it away. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I did want I did want to offer um, like my I'm going to be on a book tour. I'm going to be all over the country, but I can't I can't get to everywhere. So I wanted to offer half price, two hundred dollars on uh, a teleconference co- uh, course for any local group. Something my group uh, my local group does is we will do like a Facebook live um, a, tel- a Facebook live course. We crowdfund for it. It's transcribed. Um, and so we're able like to put together money for educators to come in, teach their class, and I'm offering that to any local group that you know that uh that that wants it. My workshop on race and polyamory by way of Skype, by way of Facebook Live. I did it recently uh, for um, Sex Positive St. Louis and Afrosexology. All you know, and that went really well. So I'm willing to do that as well. Half price, two hundred dollars. I'm I'm all for it, and um. Finding me is easy because I'm poly role models on everything. Uh, I'm poly role models on Tumblr, which is sort of the bulk of where my blog takes place, but also I'm poly role models on Twitter, on Instagram, um, poly role models on Facebook. And I've been steering people to the Facebook page, uh, the poly role models Facebook page, because that's where the event, that's where my event uh, tab is. Like I said, I'm going to be – on this book tour, I'm going to be at Southwest Love Fest in Tucson. I'm going to be at Catalyst Con in Los, uh, Los Angeles, Poly Dallas Millennium in, in July, uh, Atlanta Poly Weekend in June, Sex Down South in September. I'm going to be doing book signings in North Carolina, all over California, all over the Pacific Northwest, in D.C., in, um, in New York. I'm going to be all over the place. So come out to the Facebook wow, page, good for you. hit the events tab, mm-hmm. and 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 find something local to you. Come on out and be a part of this conversation. Excellent. We are out of time. I want to thank you again, Kevin. Um, best of luck to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was from. Okay, Kevin. So next week we're going to be speaking with the renowned author, Susan Campbell, who has been writing books for the past uh, several decades. And she'll be on the show talking about her experimentation with polyamory as well as uh, all the resources that she's written and created for our community. So please join us next week at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio. This has been your host, Stu Matisse-Spark, the Open Relations.
Facebook coach at SueMatisseSparks.com. Have a great evening.